Uh, if you're in need of a Bible to follow along, um, the back of the pew, you should find one. Uh, Ephesians is in the New Testament, and there's an index at the front of that Bible that will help you find it. It is our pattern or our habit here at Calvary to mostly, most of the time on Sundays, just work through books of the New Testament, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We took a quick pause the last few weeks to prepare ourselves for this season of prayer leading up to Easter, but now as we get back into Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to spend the next four weeks... Uh, in a series that we've called Basic Church, which is exactly what it sounds like. This is a portion of scripture where Paul lays out exactly what it is that we're doing here, how it works, why it works, um, and it's important to remember that it is entirely based upon, founded upon, a continuation of chapters 1 through 3. Okay? In fact, I would encourage you, as you go home today, to open your Bible and read at length all the way through chapters 1 and 3 uh, to remind yourselves of everything that hides behind the therefore that opens our passage this morning. Um, without saying anything more, I'd like to begin this morning just by reading the passage and praying together um, that God would speak to us and then we'll get to it. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul speaking to the church in Ephesus, and God through his word speaking to us. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Father, we just ask that you would open our ears and our heart to your word. I pray for those who are here, who call Calvary their home, who are part of the body here. I lift up those who are visiting, who already know you. And I pray for those who do not yet know you and have joined us today. And for all of us, God, would you speak to us today? Would you work in our hearts in such a way so that we can understand and encounter the reality of your truth. And I pray as well, Lord, for these social virtues that are laid out here that are defining for the community that you call the church. And I pray, Lord, that by your spirit you would help us to cultivate them and that we would be the community that you have designed us to be by the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So notice a few things right off the bat in verse 1. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. There's two things in that verse that point backwards. The first is the therefore, right? That's an in-conclusion statement. It's a summation statement. And so he says, because of everything I've told you already, therefore I urge you, right? There's a foundation here. This isn't a statement that you could just throw up on a billboard or send out into, you know, the metaverse as a tweet. It is a conclusive statement. But we also see a stretching back in, um, in the tail end of that verse when he says that we are to walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Okay? He says we are to walk a certain way because we've been called unto a certain calling. 
Okay? Now, one way that this word is sometimes translated in other Bibles is with the word vocation. And I think that's helpful. Today, when we use that word, it generally means uh, our job. What is your vocation? What is your job? I'm a plumber. You know, I'm an electrician. I'm in IT. Those are the types of things. Um, But the word actually comes from Latin for voca, to be called. Okay? And so there was a recognition uh, in the history of the Western world that there was a correlation between what you do in society and the God who created and called you into that task for the benefit of all. Okay? And so here, the idea of calling draws attention to this broad idea. And if you want to say, what has God called you to? You just have to go back and read chapters 1 through 3. That's what he's been walking through. If, uh, what we saw a few weeks ago was that chapters 1 through 3 is basically a, uh, a worship liturgy which begins with Paul praising God for the abundant blessings we have available in Christ and then moves to a time of prayer that we would know and understand and experience more of those blessings and then a couple of asides to explain that prayer and then another prayer followed by a doxology. And so basically the whole point of Ephesians so far has been to stress the amazing reality of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. But related to that act is a future, is an intention, is a calling. There's a movement forward implied in the word calling as well. That's why he says we are to walk in it. Right? He, he doesn't say, I just want you to know this, shake hands, go home, go on your way. He says, now that you have this role, this job, this calling, this vocation, I urge you to walk in it. And, and not just to walk it out, not just to live it out, but to do so in a worthy manner. Yeah, David? Yeah. Yeah. He is, yeah. That's, that's a great question, David. Let me just walk you through that. This is the third time in this letter that Paul has mentioned that he's a prisoner. If you go back at chapter 3, verse 1, you'll see the same thing. He says, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Um, so he is actually writing this letter from prison, okay? And why does he bring it up here? He brings it up here because it is related to what he's about to say. Okay. Especially in the ancient world, prisoners weren't highly esteemed. In fact, it may have even been that it made Paul's qualifications as an apostle questionable. Because if he's really God's man, what's he doing behind bars? And if God's calling, as it's laid out in these first three chapters, is so glorious, so victorious, you know, exalted above the powers and principalities, then why does he look like a failure and a loser? But he says it here because when he says walk in a manner worthy of the calling, it doesn't look like we would expect it to, okay? If somebody told you that you needed to be worthy of your calling, think of the virtues and the traits that would be on that list. You know, as I tried to reflect on this last night, the truth is we we just don't talk about people being worthy outside of Hollywood films about knights and castles. You know, it's, it's not really a part of our language. But the only touch point I could think of, and it's a horrible one, one that's really grievous, uh, is parents who feel like their children aren't living up to the family name, right? In fact, we live in a time where 
where people who are powerful or are wealthy will even disown their children because they are no longer qualified to be one of us, right? That's the right idea, even though it's expressed in such a horrible way. To walk worthy means to live in accordance with your calling, okay? And what's striking about the description here again, is that it's not what you would expect. And so if we think of walking worthy of the Rothschild name or some fancy thing like that, we think of, you know, holding our chin up and pride. We think of gentleman behavior. We think of being all of these things. But look at the list that Paul gives in verse 2 with humility and gentleness and patience. Okay, now let me be clear. Paul's going to spend three more chapters, and we're going to spend just as many months walking through all of the applications and implications of what it looks to walk worthy. This opening sentence here opens up the rest of the book. But it is amazing that he starts with these three traits. Humility, gentleness, and patience. Okay. And what I want you to notice before we unpack those more fully is that they are social virtues. Okay. Humility is about how you view yourself in relationship to others. Gentleness is about how you treat other people. And patience is about how you respond to how other people treat you. Okay? And so the calling that he's laying out here is inherently a community calling. It is a social calling. In fact, Ephesians and the rest of the New Testament is full of the little phrase, one another. And that's built into, it's implied in here. And so he says that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Guess what? You can't do that solo. That's the whole point is he's talking here about a community and he's been talking about it for three chapters. He hasn't just told us about every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ for each of you who know Jesus as individuals. He's been talking about the fact that God has taken Jew and Gentile and made them one body. He's been talking about the fact that God has created a new humanity, not just new humans, and called them into relationship with him as well as with one another. He's been talking about us as living stones that make up the same temple. He'll go on to talk about us as different parts that make up the same body. Okay, the emphasis here is on the church, and that will become more apparent as we move forward in chapter 4, because um, notice what he's going to say, for example, in um, verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint, with which is it equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Okay. Your calling is to be members of a church. That's the way that this vocation is lived out. Now, that doesn't mean that there might be individual or unique expressions. It doesn't mean that God doesn't sometimes send people out where there are no Christians. Paul was that way, right? Lest I build on another man's foundation, I've gone where the name hadn't been proclaimed to proclaim it. But what did he do when he got there? He gathered a community of believers and started a church. Okay? And so this is a strong and significant point. But what is the defining characteristic of that community? 
how do we know a good church? Or, in the case of Paul's language here, what does a worthy church look like? How do we become a worthy church? What is it to walk in alignment with the calling God has given us? And again, it, Paul hits these three traits, humility, gentleness, and patience. Okay. Let's take them in turn. And what I want you to notice is that there's a correlation between these terms and our calling. But again, it is a surprising one. Now, one way that we're not going to do this this morning that I could do very easily is to show you that humility, gentleness, and patience, those stem right out of the character of God. If we are God's children, we should have the family resemblance. This is who God is. God is humble. God is gentle. God is patient. And, and you might go, God is humble? That one's kind of weird. Use Jesus, who said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, for I am humble and gentle and I will give you rest, Jesus says. And the patience of God, the long-suffering of God, is a trait that is touted and repeated from Genesis all the way to Revelation, all the way through. It's one of the characteristic traits that we find in Exodus in the very beginning when God says, all right, Moses, you want to know who I am? And then he declares who he is. Long-suffering is, makes the list, okay? But I want to go about it a different way this morning because I want to show you there is a a juxtaposition or a paradox or a surprise in this reality. So let me show you what I mean. We should walk in humility because we've been so highly exalted. That's point number one. We should walk in humility with one another because we've been so highly exalted. And that might seem a little bit paradoxical because we associate height with pride. The greater our standing, the, you know, the greater we are, the more we feel the center of attention. But I want to suggest to you this morning that arguing about height is something that ants do and giants never do. I want to tell you this morning that uh, humility is the exact and proper response to our exaltation. And what am I talking about when I say that we've been exalted? Listen again to Paul's words here in Ephesians chapter 2. He starts with our starting place, chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead in trespasses and sins, okay? Now, I just want you to think just for a moment about that geographically. Where's the starting place here? It's the cemetery. It's six feet under, right? That's the beginning place, okay? But notice where he goes in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see the distance there? Again, think about it geographically. It's not just you were dead and now you were alive. You've been exalted and seated next to the very Son of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords in the heavenly places. That's exaltation. That's a meteoric rise, right? That is a major difference. That is rags to riches, and you could follow similar metaphors throughout the New Testament that all have this exaltation sense to it. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians, and you were poor, but Jesus in his wealth became poor so that you might become rich. 
right? And so that's an economic change, like I said, from rags to riches, but it is an exaltation change. And so how is it that that leads to humility? Uh, Two things. One is pride is inherently comparative. A man who lives alone on an island is not a proud man. He doesn't have any reason to be. He has no point of reference. He can't say that he's better than because there's no then. There's no other, right? But there's another way that pride doesn't make sense, and that's when you have everything, okay? Pride loses its ability to be comparative when you have everything. When you don't have more than, you just have all, okay? And so notice here in verse 3 of chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What is there left to covet? What is there left to compare? And so there is this reality here where pride doesn't make sense Because comparison is forsaken entirely. Like I said, in the land of giants, there is no boasting about height. But there's another and very obvious reason, which is that it's not like we found ourselves in this place because of our sheer investment prowess. We don't find ourselves to be wealthy because we worked and scrimped every dime and made the right investments and because we're so wise and so smart We don't find ourselves exalted to the right hand of God because we have, you know, won the gold medal of righteousness and he's gone, boy, I'm so impressed with you. You come, you sit with me. No. This was surprising and it was something that was done for us and this is always the the root of humility. Humility is recognizing the fact that what you have is not what you deserve. Humility is recognizing the fact that what you have is more than you could ever earn. And that is the heart of the gospel message. If you're not a Christian this morning, let me put it to you simply. What we are proclaiming that God has done in Jesus Christ is what you can't do. That's why that metaphor in Ephesians 2 is so appropriate. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God in Jesus Christ desires to make you alive. Christianity doesn't say, come and fix your life up and then God will accept you. It says God has reached out to you in Jesus Christ and he wants to make you what you are not. He wants to bring life where there is death. He wants to reach into your poverty and bring wealth. He wants to take your isolation and your alienation and your distance from God. And in Jesus Christ, he made that track, found you like a lost sheep and desires to bring you home. That's the gospel. Okay, The only proper response to that is dumbfounded humility. We talked about it a few weeks ago, right? There's a sense where the proper response to the gospel always goes, me? Jesus is calling me? God wants me as his child? Okay, and so it makes no sense in our community as a church, as those who share in every spiritual blessing, as those who find ourselves not just in fellowship on earth, but in a significant way because we are in Christ, in fellowship in the heavenly places with God the Father himself, it makes no sense to continue our ant-like comparisons. It makes no sense to maintain distinctions of status or wealth or intelligence 
or ability, let alone self-righteousness that says that person isn't as good of a Christian as I am. And the truth is, you want to know what eats alive other communities? Because you were born for community. Know it or not, when God looks at Adam alone in the garden, he goes, this isn't good. This isn't finished. This isn't complete. You need other people. Life is only lived together. But life together is hard. And one of the major reasons life together is hard is because pride gets in the way. Because we need to be the center of attention. Because we need to be the smartest in the room. Because we need everyone else to know that we are not like them and they should be blessed that we would even tolerate their presence. Right? And you guys have experienced these things. You've tasted it in the workplace. You know it in your family dynamics. You've experienced it even in friend circles where suddenly the whole dynamic of friends have fragmented and gone each other's way because they're just too full of themselves to continue together. But that doesn't make any sense in the church. That doesn't make any sense to the church. There's a scene in one of the Charlie and the Chocolate Film Factories where Willy Wonka is addressing all the children one by turn, and he gets to little poor Charlie Bucket, and he says, and you, you're just happy to be here, aren't you? That is understanding your status in the church. We're all just happy to be here. And that humility is essential to cultivate, to maintain, to deepen if our community is going to be what it is called to be and if it's going to reflect the goodness of the God who called us. We walk in humility because we have been so exalted. Let's look at the next one. He says, second, with gentleness. I want to suggest to you that the reason we should be a community of gentleness, a reason we should walk in this with one another, we should be gentle to one another, is because we have been so empowered. And again, as we've studied Ephesians together, we've seen that power is on the glossary of the book of Ephesians. Paul uses it all the time. And so he prays at the end of chapter 1, he says, I pray that you would know the hope of your calling. He says, I pray that you'd know your glorious inheritance in the saints. There's another community cue, right? I pray you'd know how wealthy you are in one another. That's what he says. And then he says, and I pray that you would know the power that now works in you, which is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And not only raised him from the dead, but exalted him. And then he tells us in chapter 2 that that power also raised you from the dead and exalted you. And then he tells us in chapter 3 that his role as an apostle is because he's been empowered by the grace of God. And then he tells us, as we saw in the prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, that we need the strength of God to be the temple of God, so he prays that God would empower us by his marvelous strength. Okay, he's been talking about power this whole time. And again, in our usual way of thinking about it, the expression of power is the flexing of muscles. The expression of power is putting people in their place. The expression of power is to use it abundantly, that's not actually how power works. When you were a kid and you couldn't open the pickles, it looks like you were straining and striving and working so hard to open that jar and then you give it to mom or dad and they just pop it. That's gentleness. They don't need to express all their power because they have it. That's how power works. You don't need all of it all at once. And the other thing about this power is, again, just like we saw with our exaltation, it's not our own. Now, this is so important 
Because as we go on, Paul is going to call us as a community to exhort one another, to stir one another up to love and good works, even to confront one another when we go astray and are doing things that are not in alignment with our calling. He's going to send us out in the world to communicate good news to our neighbors who need to hear it. But so often we think the way that we're going to do those things is with power, and almost always with our own power. And so again, here's how this plays out in communities. Things that really threaten the community show up. Sin. People mistreat one another. It happens. And how do we respond? With power. We yell. We raise our voices. We shake our fists. And those of you who are parents know that this temptation is always right there. Because you're bigger than them. And sometimes the only way you can keep them safe is to remind them. But sometimes our expression of power isn't for them at all. It's for us. Because we need to be in control. It's because we need to show them who's boss. Phrases like this. This is an amazing thing, but the power of God is benevolent. Inherently. It's always used for others. It's always for the sake of others. That's how God works. Even when God judges, he judges to protect. He judges to deliver. He judges to save. That's how God uses his power. Unlike the myths of the ancient world where the gods want to put humans in their place and make them their slaves, this is the God who desires to make people their sons. So God is gentle because he's all-powerful. And we can be gentle because that all-powerful God is at work. And so when we go out, we don't have to come up with strong arguments and baritone voices to convince the world that God is real because God is real. And we can trust that his spirit is going to work in people's hearts. This is why it's never made sense to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ with a sword in hand and say, convert or die. It completely misunderstands the power of God and it definitely misunderstands the power of men because you cannot convert someone at gunpoint. Okay. And it's the same in our community here. When we come and when we deal with one another's sins, we do it gently. Paul says this to the church in Galatians. He says, if any of you is caught up in a sin, let the others around him restore him with gentleness. And it's because there's enough power in God's salvation to meet them where they are, to call them home, to convince them in their hearts, which you can't touch, by the way. Paul says about God in the book of Romans that he uses his kindness to lead us to repentance. That's gentleness. Okay? And so we are gentle with one another. When sin shows up, when we do things, even when we're trying to instruct or to encourage or to lead, we do so with gentleness. The Bible is full of military metaphors for the people of God. It seems to have no discomfort with that analogy, even though sometimes it can bother us. 
But we should never mistake that as a justification for, you know, a drill sergeant approach to Christianity. Even when Jesus deals with those who are plotting his death, he does so with gentleness. Even when he says hard words, he does it in gentle tones. It's incredible. Okay. And it's what cultivates community. Because here's what it says. When you come to someone in gentleness and you need to have a hard talk, but you have it gently, it says you are already one of us. It says your relationship with me isn't at risk right now. It says there's still hope for you, even in the mistakes that you've made, which are all true, but also makes or cultivates or presents the possibility of restoration, which is Jesus. Again, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But why are they weary and heavy laden? Because they've been striving and struggling in rebellion and rejection of God. And he opens his hands and says, come, come home. It's the father of the prodigal son who embraces his son and says, forget your talk of becoming a household servant. Let's have a party. It's gentleness. But it's gentleness rooted in an understanding of what the power is, how much the power is, and where the power lies. Then we have the last one with patience. And this word's an interesting one. Some of your translations would say long-suffering which is exactly what it sounds like. The patient person is the one who can suffer long without doing something about it, okay? Um, but this particular word actually means slow to anger. In, in the Greek, it's got the word anger right in it, and the word that comes before it is slow. It's that simple, okay? Now, why is that important? Well, he tells us why in the next phrase. Notice there what he says in verse 3, verse uh, Chapter 4, verse, uh, sorry, tail end of 2. With all patience, bearing with one another in love. You know what that word bearing means? It means to tolerate. It means to put up with. I love the honesty of that. This was partially due to some self-esteem struggles I had, but I also think it was coming to understand this. But I used to say to people when I first meet them, Hi, my name is Justin. Eventually, I will disappoint you. Right? And, and this is the way it is. And, and the truth is, for all the frayed and frazzled community in your history, as much as you may be able to place the blame on other people, you also know very clearly the places where you've blown things up. Okay. Patience is a recognition that we need to bear with one another, to tolerate one another, that none of us are perfect, that none of us get it right all the time, that none of us always have the best interest at hearts, that none of us are as self-serving or uh, as others-centered as we could be. Um, these are all kind of built into it. And so we're to bear with one another, and it adds that phrase, in love, and that's really important. Okay. The way we do that is as brothers and sisters. But again, the expression, the importance, the virtue here is the virtue of being long-suffering or patient or slow to anger. Okay. It is amazing how quickly exasperation will ruin a community. It is amazing how quickly we can quench the wick. 
which is something that the Bible says that Jesus never did. Even if there was just a little smoke in the flax, he could fan it into a flame. Patience gives room for the Spirit to work. Patience gives room for progress to take. This is, again, a totally natural illustration. But have you ever tried to form a new habit? You know what never works with new habits? I'm going to get it right every day, and if I don't, I'm going to give up. Right? You're going to miss a day. You're going to have days where your motivation doesn't meet you where you are, and then you have the real choice. Do you try again, or do you walk away? Patience leaves room to try again. Patience is also essential, and this is really important to understand, church, because although we all have experienced the same exaltation, we didn't all start in the same place. Okay? And, and I would suggest to you that if you envision salvation like a map, Jesus comes to us wherever we are on the map and brings us to this place, but we're at different places on the map. And we may be really far away in some areas and and much closer in some areas. And very little of that can you take credit for. Some of you grew up in homes where anger was so obvious, consistent, and natural that it is just a much bigger struggle than somebody who grew up in a relatively stable home where it wasn't expressed. And again, this is why comparisons are so stupid. It's like feeling good that we're winning a race when we got a 30-yard head start. We don't always know where people are coming from. But that means patience, because there's a difference between growth and perfection. And what God is doing in us is growth. And growth is growth even if it's just a meter when you were already behind your peers by 30 yards. Patience recognizes that, affirms it, celebrates it, encourages it, and is patient recognizing that we're not all going to be at the same place. Put these three things together, and and what do you get? You get a sustainable community. And God has work for us to do. He has gifts that he's given each one to use for the edification of the body. He's given us a mission that's supposed to impact that world and reflect God's kingdom and all these things. None of that works if the community breaks down, and you all know it. There is no worse witness for Jesus Christ than a church filled with infighting and arrogance. These are bottom floor issues, central virtues for what it means to be a community because if these fall away, everything else follows. But I want you to notice something in verse 3. He says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That second phrase, the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, it's all kind of religious technical language. It's really easy to just breeze through that and not really know what it means and not slow down to think what it means. But again, it's rooted in what we've been learning in chapters one through three. The unity of the spirit and the bond of peace comes from the idea in chapter two that God has taken people who were very different, Jews and Gentiles, broken down the wall of hostility, made peace in the body of Jesus, and therefore made the two one. That's what he's referring to here. And I want to tell you this morning that if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have been joined to the body and you are now one with the church. 
In fact, notice he says eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. See, here's, here's the thing. We all know that you can't have a community without unity. Again, it's built in the name. Okay. But there's been this huge push in recent times because we're so lonely and because we've been so buying into the individualistic pipe dream that we find ourselves in need of other people in a way that we probably didn't know. In fact, uh, uh, Jarius yesterday was talking with us and he pointed out that COVID just exposed that like crazy. We all thought we were fine on our own until we had no choice. And now we're going, oh gosh, I need other people, okay? But the danger is to assume that we need to make unity. That, you know, we need to have pep rallies or uh, trust exercises to cultivate unity in the church. But that's not what he says. He doesn't say eager to make unity. He doesn't say be unified. He says maintain it. And we hit this really hard a few weeks ago when we were looking at Ephesians 2. Christ broke down the hostility. Christ is our peace. And he's done that for us as Christians past tense. But it does have to be maintained. Okay. It's kind of like the garden in the beginning of the Bible. God gave it to them. Adam, Eve, they didn't plant those trees. They were already in bloom and in fruit, and they were already benefiting from it, and he said, take care of this garden, right? I'm entrusting to you what I have given you. That's what the word maintain implies, okay? And what I would suggest is when we go about life with humility and gentleness and patience, we do good weeding. We recognize threats to the body when they're small, and we deal with them when they're small. That's why he says eager to maintain the unity. And this word eager is used across the New Testament in some other ways. Sometimes in the New King James, it's translated as forward. And sometimes it's translated as speedy. Speedy to maintain unity. Diligence is another way that this is translated. In fact, this is the word that's used of young Timothy when Paul says, study to show yourself a worker It means diligence, it means commitment, it means work. So recognizing that God has done the big job, broken down the dividing wall, made us one, brought us together, given us, you know, uh, forgiveness of our sins and the ability to forgive one another, he's done all that. There's still a work to do. There's still a walk to be walked out. Okay. And we should be eager for it. Eager to maintain unity means that we would strive to cultivate humility, gentleness, and patience in our own life. Eagerness to maintain unity means that when somebody has sinned against us, we would be quick to go to them with a heart of forgiveness, to speak to them in truth and love and and restore the relationship. Diligence to maintain unity means that we don't cultivate and allow for bitterness to thrive in our heart and kind of avoid people. Diligence to maintain unity means that we recognize that community is only enjoyed with commitment and habit. And so we step into it, and we pursue it, and we make it routine, and we make it regular. And like Nick said about, about, um, about the prayer liturgy we're doing right now, sometimes you do it when you don't feel it. All of that means eager to maintain. But notice again, it's the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. 
the commonality is already there. And you've experienced what I'd call a commonality inflation, okay? If we were to go around the room and just cut Jesus out of our life story, some of us would have things in common, others would have other things in common, and then there'd be major differences, okay? That's a real part of human engagement is what we have in common. C.S. Lewis likes to say that's how friendship works. Friendship starts when you go, you? Me too, right? Commonality. But what's happened in Jesus Christ is not that God says, forget about common, that doesn't matter. He's just created a greater, higher standard of commonality. And and let's just look at it quickly. We'll talk about this next week, but look at where he goes in verse 4. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's all what we share in common. Your eternal destiny, your Lord and Savior, okay? The, the, the faith, the doctrine of how God set things right, we all entered in through the same door of the same baptism. We became part of the same body. That's commonality inflation, the most important things in your life you now share in common with the others sitting in this room and, to be honest, across the globe. Yesterday at our outreach, there was a whole group of Koreans who came down with a friend of our church to just go out and talk to our neighbors, many of them never having been to Capitol Hill, and share with them the love of Christ and some sandwiches and some other things. One of the women, Sarah, as soon as she came in the room, introduced herself and hugged all of us. That's the unity of the spirit, of the bond of peace. She knows she's family. Day one. And I have met Christians in France who I knew were my brothers and sisters. And I have encountered strangers and suddenly known them as family. That's the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. It's not because the differences don't stand. And in many places, when the differences cause division, it's not because the differences don't matter. It's because they've been outstripped. The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace has created the possibility for one humanity. It has created the possibility for one commonality. And when we get to the book of Revelation, when we get to uh, the world that God is building, listen to this, and I want you to ask yourself, what is it that makes this community together? This is what he says in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So much diversity, so much difference, Different tribes, different languages, different countries, different cultures, and yet they are all gathered around the throne of Jesus Christ in worship. That's the commonality. If Jesus is your Lord, then we are brothers and sisters, disciples together. If God is your Father, then we are brothers and sisters in the family of God. If you are a part of this church, then you're a part of the body. We have all of these things in common. And so again, this is not, in Ephesians chapter 3, a recipe that if we execute, God will do what we want him to do. 
It's not a means to achieve heaven on earth. Heaven on earth came in Jesus Christ. And this is the right and proper response to it. Okay. I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure, but there's an amazing sermon by C.S. Lewis called The Weight of Glory. And he suggests in it that you've never met a mere human. And his point is that when God gets involved in a human life, his destiny is so significant and so exalted that every even minor interaction we have with another human being is of great significance. That's what Paul is trying to say here. He's trying to say, walk worthy of the calling because the people sitting next to you are those who were bought with the blood of Christ. Because the people that you were called to repent pray for one another, to love one another, to serve one another, are God's forever family, to use hippie language. And that also applies in the reverse. You should be humble, and you should be gentle, and you should be patient, because you need this family. Nick's brother Riley, who's a pastor up north, he said once, and I've never forgotten it, he says, community doesn't make the Christian life better. It makes it possible. Community doesn't make the Christian life better, more enjoyable. It makes it possible. One of the things that God is using consistently and regularly in your life to make, him, make you more like him is the church. And I'm not talking about the event of showing up on Sunday or the taking of communion or these types of things, although those all have parts to play in this. I'm just talking about the community itself, the love one another community that God has given us. And so it's something that we should cherish. It's something that we should fight for. It's something that we should be eager to cultivate, eager to maintain the unity uh, of the spirit in the bond of peace. And it's something that we should constantly rejoice in. Like Paul prayed in the beginning of Ephesians, I pray that you would know the glorious inheritance in the saints. God has given you a gift and it's sitting in this room. So let's walk in our vocation with humility and gentleness and patience. Let's pray.